Hello and welcome to Ancient Futures, where the time is always now. Um, if we see things clearly, that is. Today, I'm talking to Jeevana Heyman about his new book, The Teacher's Guide to Accessible Yoga. Now, that's a term he's been using since 2007, when he first trained disabled teachers. But it's also a much broader concept, and uh, it's pointing to something subtler than modified postures, which is often what people understand as accessible yoga. Instead, it reveals that uh, something is accessible through yoga, uh, the imminent presence of one's innermost being. Now, as we discuss, that can set the bar quite high for teachers of yoga, um, but it is also aligned with traditional goals. However, taking those on board raises some other concerns about authenticity and uh, about social justice questions, uh, particularly whether cultural appropriation is a meaningful concept. Um, so we do unpack that uh, along with a few other things, uh, such as Jeevana's slogan, if it's not accessible, it's not yoga, um, as well as the headline on an article he once wrote for Yoga Journal saying, yoga has always been political. Now, both of those are statements with which I uh, instinctively wanted to quibble a bit. Um, so we did have a good chat about what lies behind them. And uh, Jeevana shares some inspiring conclusions. Just quickly before we get started, though, um, if you're a fan of the podcast and would like to support it, please consider becoming a paying subscriber. Um, to do that, just visit ancientfutures.substack.com, where you can also make one-off donations. And uh, I'm deeply grateful to those who are already doing that. Um, as I explained in a recent article that you can find on the site, you help make it possible to keep doing this work. For now, though, on with it. <laughs> Let's explore what's accessible through yoga with Jeevana Heyman. Jeevana, welcome. Hey. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's so nice to see you. Well, likewise. And thank you also for sending me this, ah. Ah. <laughs> The Teacher's Guide to Accessible Yoga. Uh, it's uh, been been keeping me company all day. In fact, I've been, oh. been also having a look back at uh, some of your earlier writing, and uh, you're going back to the beginning with accessible oh. yoga oh. and uh, <laughs> seeing the journey you've been on in the last uh, ten years or so in the, the yeah. writing and producing of books. And uh, before we dive into the new book and talk a little bit about you know, some of the evolution of what you've been presenting, um, I'd just like to ask if you could clarify for all of the people who are listening, what accessible yoga actually means. <laughs> That's actually one of the hardest questions I get, actually. <laughs> uh, it's funny because I really, I think it depends on context a little bit, you know. Um, I mean, it's definitely a phrase that I came up with to define something that I was trying to share with the world, which was hmm. trying to trying to show that we could make these teachings available to everyone. And I, you know, I have a background in uh, AIDS activism and, hmm. uh, and that really, through that work, my AIDS activism, I really became more conscious of ableism. And I started to see, you know, in the, I guess it was in the 90s when I started teaching, I think that's when it was so clear that yoga was kind of turning to something else. And I was just really concerned. And so accessible yoga was just an effort to reframe or, or kind of state that yoga can be available to everyone. 
Um, and just to clarify, ableism meaning yeah, sort of bias towards people who are physically capable of doing all sorts of uh, manipulations of their body parts. Yeah. And, and interesting, the other part of ableism that I think is really important in the yoga world is part of ableism is the idea that disabled people need to be fixed or changed. Mm. And I think that's kind of a core element of contemporary practice, this idea of, you know, fixing us and turning us into some kind of something else, right? Like becoming yeah. something else. Yeah. So that, that's it. But the other thing about accessible yoga, I would just say is that to me, I'm really, as you know, I'm very interested in practicing yoga, like being a practitioner and the spiritual aspects actually are what really draw me and, and philosophy as well. And I feel like people think of accessible yoga mostly as how to adapt asana. And that's a yes. big part of what I do. <laughs> but I just want to say, I think there's more to it than that. You know, that to me, it's about finding a way to help people get access to some of those deeper aspects of yoga. Oh, thank you for clarifying all of that. And that line really about, you know, not uh, fixing people really stood out to me. If uh, if I remember rightly, it was a um, an excerpt you just ran in Yoga Journal from the book, which focused on that, the whole sort yeah. of um, yeah, challenge as a teacher of, uh, I guess, being confronted with people who seem like they've got things that you can do something with and uh, to, to be okay with just letting them be who they are rather than assuming that you know in the first place what's wrong in inverted commas with them and let alone that you can put it in inverted commas again right <laughs> yeah exactly i mean it feels like yoga can be used you know for kind of whatever purpose we want i mean we tend to you know and i do that too I'll, I'll i'll take responsibility for what i'm doing too which is kind of framing it for to fit into my world view and mm. um I think that's happened quite a lot, you know, in contemporary practice that it kind of goes along with this idea of, I don't know, like um, in the wellness world that we're trying to fix and become something, you know, that if we have the right clothing and if we're on the right beach or something, then we'll be <laughs> happy. You know, this idea of attaining something that's really kind of a marketing ploy, I think. Yeah. Yeah, no one, no one ever, you know, failed to get rich by promising other people that they would get in some way enriched. <laughs> exactly, right. And so I think there's such been such an impact on yoga from from that, and and literally from marketing, you know, conscious. Well, maybe not conscious, like, but from marketing people working for like clothing companies and and wellness brands that are showing us that you can, yeah, you can get something that you don't have if you change. And I I don't think that's what yoga is necessarily about. I mean, yoga is definitely about evolving um but maybe it's or devolving connecting back to something that we have within us and i feel like that's really the core teaching that's lost this idea that we already have it we're fine like part of us is un unchanged and unaffected by anything and that's what i love about yoga you know this kind of focus on the i hate to say focus on the positive but this idea that we are <laughs> okay you know and i think that my new book is an effort to help support yoga teachers in reframing their work a little bit, you know, away from that. Well, one of the ways in which you reframe your own role, which really stood out for me, um, yeah, it was very powerful, in fact, uh, so much that I wrote it down. Um, it's a, a line about, you know, uh, in the context of spiritual bypass, you're talking about, you know, the fact that actually it's important as a yoga teacher to, to really acknowledge that 
we might be struggling. And in fact, you say yoga teachers are often people who are struggling with life, but doing it in a conscious way. And so stopping yeah, any pretense we? of being, you know, we've got it all under control um, and actually admitting, yeah. you know, we're, we're in this mess together. And uh, what we're trying to do is make peace with our situation as far as we can. Yeah, coming back to the old serenity prayer, <laughs> changing what mm. we can do something about while also, you know, making our peace with what we can't. So yeah, I was curious to hear how that shows up for you as uh, yeah, a teacher of accessible yoga. What, what way do you feel that you're struggling with life? Wow. Well, I mean, first, I just want to agree that it seems like <laughs> I don't want to say that yoga teachers are maybe the messiest people I know, but <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's not far from that, to be honest. I mean, I'm surrounded by them. Um, you know, I, I, I love yoga teachers dearly, but part of it is just that there's so we're so messy and we and I include myself like we're just human I think what it is that makes someone a yoga maybe not mean a yoga teacher but a yoga practitioner is is an awareness of that you know just an awareness that there's something there's something not right maybe it's suffering you know that we're suffering in a more conscious way and we think oh I want to do something about that like you said um change what we can change for myself, I mean, you know, yeah, I've had so many struggles and challenges. I mean, it's endless. I don't think we want to go into that. I'm happy to share. <laughs> but it's like, you know, this could be therapy. I, I'm happy to talk about, you know, I remember one moment um, turning 50 um, and my mom died that same year. And it was just like, I don't know, I just felt completely lost and overwhelmed. And it's like my body started having physical problems and and I was in grief from her death. And it was like, I had anxiety and all these problems started happening. And I was like, wait, how could this be happening to me? I've been practicing very earnestly for like 30 years. And here I am like a total disaster. And then I just realized, you know, I'm, I'm human. That's just the nature of humanity. It's like yoga is not going to change that, right? It's about accepting that part of myself. Yeah. Oh, thank you for sharing that. And um, I think that is, you know, really in itself a very accessible message because uh, there's probably nobody out there who can't relate to the idea of, you know, being in some kind of, uh, you know, panic stricken moment. Uh, we we, we yeah. all go through that. And yoga is not a way. In fact, that's a really harmful use of yoga to try and hide from feeling. I mean, I've done that myself in all sorts of ways, you know, originally. Yeah. There are all sorts of really self-destructive methods that I used yoga to try and let go of, but um, then I used yoga to do that also. So uh, it's definitely yeah. more welcome to to admit to the fact that we struggle. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's what it is to be human, and I don't think yoga is about denying humanity, but connecting with another part of ourselves. And I just, you know, I mm. I love that idea that we can accept our differences, our frailty, and you know, and that's okay. That's not, that doesn't need to be fixed or changed. It's about yoga is about something else, right? Connecting to, like I said, to this other part of ourselves, that's okay. And, and I think that gets confused, you know, you know what I'm saying? That it's like, we confuse this idea of fixing rather to just reconnecting. And I think that's a different framework for the work. Well, it's a difference, difference between coming home and having to go on a long journey to some unknown <laughs> destination way over the hill. In <laughs> yeah, exactly. There you go. That's beautiful. Yeah. It's just coming home. Yeah.
curious then as as presenting this to teachers um you know, what it was that was inspiring you to to you know kind of start again go back to the drawing board having already written a book really generally about this practice of accessible yoga feeling the urge to to come back with a specifically teacher oriented guide to how to present things to make that you know more accessible yeah i i think it was just um it's what I do all, all day. I, I train yoga teachers. And so I just, it occurred to me that I could reach more yoga teachers that way. And that, and that there's a message that I have for yoga teachers that's slightly different than the general public. I mean, it's still similar. It's still accessible yoga. It's still about, you know, the way I perceive these teachings, but I just think yoga teachers are so important in this, in this process, right? Like, they're the ones, they're like at the front lines of making this impact in the world. And I feel like they can cause so much damage. <laughs> you know, they can do so <laughs> much wrong. Yeah. And have, you know, we all have. I have too. I mean, there's been so much abuse and and terrible things mm. on behalf of yoga teachers. And I think, and yet I know so many that are incredible. I mean, I really know some so many amazing yoga teachers. So I just think uh, we need to be a little more ethical actually is really maybe the the core of what I'm thinking about. Like how can we really embody yoga's ethics when we're teaching mm -hmm. and really value, maybe not value, but really understand the importance of what we're doing, you know, really that there's so much power in our position. And I think that we need to wield that power more consciously and, that's why I wrote the book to try to just support teachers in, in bringing a more conscious ethical approach to what they're doing. One of the pillars um, when you were describing what accessible yoga is at the beginning of the book um, is community. And um, I was uh, curious as to how that might you know, play into the question of accountability, given that you know, perhaps traditional lineage structures haven't <laughs> shown their, their, their capacity to, to, to hold gurus to account. Um, and also, you know, the, modern capitalist yoga jungle um, hasn't necessarily developed uh, its own muscles in that direction either. Yeah, right. I do think community is the key. I, I don't know. I don't know the exact process, but I feel like that's the only way. I think I have, I, I quote Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, he says, uh, mm. the next Buddha is a Sangha. It's like, that's the only way forward is, is through connection. And that's part of this book why I wrote this book too, is to have a conversation actually. Like I don't, I mean, I say a lot in there, but I also know that, you know, people will disagree with me and there's more, there's a lot more to say. And, um, and I'm open to that. Like I'd like to hear from other teachers, but going back to what you're asking, I think, um, I think first it starts with us just recognizing that we're human and we're gonna mess up. And then we recognize, oh wait, I do need some support to help me with that. Like you said, it's probably not gonna be a guru or a teacher these days, but it could be my, my other yoga teacher friends, right? It could be um, a community that I build of people, a peer support, just people that I talk to when I need help. And yeah. it happens all the time. So actually one thing I do in the book is I share at the end of each chapter, like a scenario, which is something that's actually happened to me. And, you know, where I've really struggled and not known what to do. And then I kind of give what my answer would be now. Um, but I just know at the time, so often I would have to go to my yoga teacher friends 
and ask them like, what do you think? You know, and that's just been, it's been so valuable for me to have that over the years, you know, other yoga teachers that, I mean, I might look up to, up to them, but I don't, they're not necessarily my teachers. They're people that I maybe even learn from sometimes, but also practice along with, or just have some kind of, yeah, peer relationship with. I don't, I don't see any other way. Yeah. No, I hear you. And um, I guess the other question though is, you know, out there again in the, the sort of uh, wild west of yoga, um, we've, we've not really got uh, community groups a lot of the time because everybody's you know out in this very competitive everyone for himself um striving to make ends meet um there's not even in the way that there was 20 years ago you know sort of established yoga schools um and yet you've built a yoga school so i'm kind of curious as to, to how you found that process sort of almost swimming against the tide in that sense yeah it's interesting i've been thinking about that actually um I think the accessible yoga community is actually quite small. You know, we have kind of a very tight knit circle of people who I know that I've trained or that have trained with people I've trained. And I feel like, you know, or other teachers, great teachers like Matthew Sanford, for example, is just such a pioneer. Anyway, I mean, there's, there's a community we used to meet, you know, we'd have conferences uh, mm. before COVID. Well, during COVID, we did it online, but in person, those were really special in terms of building community. You know, that's that in-person connection is quite powerful. But I've been thinking about how do I reach this broader audience and what does that mean? And I feel like I'm definitely in my comfort zone when I work within my community. Like it's, they support me, you know? And so like, it's been interesting in the process of, of marketing this book, which has just come out. It's like, who am I talking to exactly? Mm -hmm. You know, am I just talking to my peers basically and to the people who already agree with me? Can I reach out uh, kind of to the other part of that yoga? Yeah, I love what you're calling it, jungle and the wild west. I mean, it really <laughs> is, you know. Actually, you know how I do those? I do these reels where I remix some kind of intense mm -hmm. asana thing. That has been a real eye-opening experience for me, working, like just tagging or, or messaging these teachers who I never would connect with otherwise. And their response has been amazingly positive, actually. Like, I think most uh, people really need that connection or want it. They just don't know how. Yeah. Just to clarify for those who aren't extremely online, yes. Jivana takes uh, videos that people make on Instagram of themselves doing, you know, fancy uh, show off uh, contortion type yoga and uh, demonstrates how by sitting in a chair or <laughs> some other, you know, very um, static approach, uh, you can actually achieve a very similar result from the point of view of you know just tuning into the body and uh, they're quite sort of uh, tongue-in-cheek and at the same time you know quite serious and it's nice that people come with the sort of seriousness understanding the tongue-in-cheekness and, and, and want to engage rather than feeling yeah. insulted or talked down to <laughs> yeah I was worried at first but like the reaction is almost always positive by them usually I would ask them first um, mm. And always they're like, yeah, I love making yoga accessible. They often these people, and I'm, I'm saying these people and that's othering them already, but you know, they're doing this intense practice and yet they would say, yeah, I really, I'm interested in making yoga accessible. So I think they, they have this ideal, like they, they want it, but maybe don't know how. And I think also it's about connecting, just connecting to anyone, being open to building community. I think most of us do want that in yoga. And there has been a failure, I think of, I'll say the structures that we have, like the default structures, say like of Yoga Alliance or groups like that, 
that really have been ineffective at supporting community building in yoga. And like you said, the guru, the guru lineage and all that has also been ineffective. I mean, there's benefit to it, but I think it barely exists anymore. So it's like, what is left? You know, I, I think to be honest, what's left for me is that individual teachers who are working within their communities and building that on kind of a small level. And I, that's another reason I wrote the book is to support those teachers. Cause I think they are doing the work. Like, you know, people who teach in their little town and they have a group of students who are dedicated to them and they're dedicated to their students. And that that's the community of yoga, I think. And uh, I also appreciate though, that you have reached out in the writing of the book, you know, well beyond let's say your comfort zone, even because <laughs> you spoke to a few people um, whose yeah. uh, quotes you include in the book, you know, who yeah. would very much not almost identify themselves at least as accessible yoga yeah. practitioners or be identified by those who practice with them with that label. I'm thinking particularly of uh, Jason Crandall and Kino McGregor, yeah. um, you know, no, known as strong vinyasa based uh, teachers of, you know, um, very sort of serious, <laughs> asana focused yoga um although they've got much else to offer as well uh, mm. i'm wondering how both of those conversations came about and uh why um, you chose to end the book with kino um yeah. i was very surprised when i got there and she's in the epilogue sort of framing the whole conclusion yeah i think you already got it i mean i think it's just what you said i felt i i, I don't know like through this last couple of years as i've been reaching out kind of, a, I keep wanting to say across the aisle, because I think about American politics, you know, how we're just so divided <laughs> here. And I think it is so of, polarized. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's just the nature of our uh, US culture and society right now. There's so much separation. And, and so that's part of my interest is like reaching out within the yoga community, which you think it would be, it would be easy to do. But yeah, um, I actually had Kino was the first person I made one of those mixed reels with, and she was mm. so open to it. And we've actually kind of made a friendship over the years um, through a few little things. She's quite surprising. I don't know if you know her, but I've only ever emailed her, but yeah. Okay, yeah. She puts out a very, yeah, like it's a very strange image of this very intense physical practice, but she's a very dedicated practitioner, really understands the heart of yoga, I think, really, really well. And She's just so dedicated to yoga. I mean, I really admire that about her. And actually, she has a new book coming out that's called Accessible Ashtanga. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, which is kind of funny to me. But anyway, I think she's also been a great supporter of my work. I appreciate that. Jason, I, Jason Crandall, I don't really know him, but I, I appreciate him. Like from what I've read of him and studied just of what he shares in the world, um, it always feels pretty clear. And I think he has... I think he's well-meaning. And so I also, I, I guess I was trying to find people that I could, yeah, find some connection with, you know, even though we're not exactly the same, we're dedicated to yoga teachers mostly and to teaching yoga. And like Judith Lassiter, who I think of as like, you know, the old school, like she's really yeah. like started that, like she did so much, you know, she, was the first person that I know who created a code of ethics for yoga teachers when she ran the California Yoga Teachers Association way back when, you know, basically created yoga journal. I don't know, like she, she's pretty incredible. So I guess she saw plenty, plenty in the Iyengar world of the oh, seventies yeah, yeah. and eighties to <laughs> give her the shivers. Yeah. I mean, there's so many more, so many other people, but I just thought, I, I don't know. I wanted to make a small step. Mm outward from exactly from my comfort zone 
And uh, it was fun. I'm, I'm sharing those conversations in a podcast too. So those will come out eventually. You can actually hear the full conversations I had with them if people are interested. The ones with Jason and Kino are really interesting uh, for sure. Um, I don't agree with everything they said, but that's okay. You know, the other thing I was thinking about you today, actually, um, you know how it seems like in the past in yoga, there was this debate, like, like a, a, what do you call it? There was a, a different way of approaching, talking about the teachings and sharing them, which was more in a debate style, right? Where you didn't just, you mm. didn't have to agree with someone. You'd actually just have a conversation and there were public debates were often how it was done. Right. Am I right about that? Yeah, violent disagreements in some cases as well. I mean, really, you know, just utter disdain for other philosophical perspectives, despite, you know, an enormous overlap between the various different worldviews that sort of broadly speaking have framed yoga over the centuries. Yeah. But that that seems missing to me, like the exchange, you know what I mean? Yeah. The exchange of ideas. And so I kind of wanted to do that. And actually, with Kino, I pulled out the piece that I agreed with <laughs> from her. <laughs> from her you know the conversation i had with her and that's why i closed the book with that just to show like i i love this idea of, she, she talked about herself as a student you know that she's yeah. always a student and i think that's so important because people see her as like this perfect yoga whatever and um i love that she, i really saw she was very dedicated to that idea of her that i'm a student first and i love that as a teacher i think we have that's why i want to end the book with this idea of still being a student that that's maybe the most important message you know for me well absolutely and in the same spirit you know if we're not asking questions if we're not continuing to inquire if we think we've got all the answers already we've kind of given up on the whole point of practice because you know every answer is provisional it's yeah in this moment and the, the search continues as long as we're alive um and it's not really like we're going to find anything other than, you know, what we've got right here, but we've got to keep looking at it. Otherwise yeah. we drift off into la la land again. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I think that's been, that's been important for me because I, I, I trained through a lineage through integral yoga and mm -hmm. I, I was following, I was definitely in the guru tradition and I believed everything that I was told hundred percent. And I, when I saw other traditions, I thought, Oh, that's wrong. You know, and it took me a long time to let go of that and to start to appreciate the diversity within yoga, even and different perspectives on these same teachings, which is so, so important. Well, absolutely. And I think within a lot of these traditions, um, you know, I spent a lot of time in the Iyengar world initially. Um, there was utter disdain, really, for most other approaches to asana practice. Um, and, yeah. uh, you know, it is quite similar to the you know, the ancient tradition of basically you know, absolutely savage your rivals by calling them ignorant and, you know, adherents of a completely different tradition, completely rejecting everything they say. And, yeah. um, you know, that's, that's not very helpful, obviously, because no tradition's got a monopoly on on really anything other than its own approach <laughs> and uh yeah in the end there are many different ways to a similar objective so um, there's this validity to dabbling a little bit and seeing from a different you know viewpoint because it helps us to see through some of these things that we're told that aren't necessarily true about <laughs> the worldview that we've been presented or or even yeah. you know the way that the philosophy relates to the practices which in many cases have been you know put together in much more recent times than the texts that are being used to rationalize them yeah that is always funny to me it does seem like it's something i love about yoga and that's so challenging is just that it's such a mishmash <laughs> <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a patchwork. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. 
And I think, you know, it's okay to embrace that too. Like, you know, I just know, I know only what I know. I mean, I only know the things I've studied, the people I study with, and I know there's totally different ways of approaching the same ideas. But that's why I go back to being a practitioner, you know, and, and I say, well, I'm not an academic because I don't, it's kind of like giving myself uh, a break or an out, you know, which is like, for me, it's just about my practice and trying to understand it through my personal experience. Yeah. Well, that's very important. And um, I'm, I'm always being, you know, hauled up on social media by people who want to say, you know, what's all this sort of academic, you know, kind of yeah. deconstruction of things? Yeah, what does that contribute? How's anybody going to get anywhere in their life listening to you, basically? <laughs> I sort of tried to say, well, I found it really helpful to, you know, break down some of the things yeah. I've been told that turned out not to be very true. And I, yeah. I'd like to help others to, you know, just look outside their little sort of prism um, and to see through a slightly different uh, refraction of, of things, because it's never the whole truth. It's just, you know, a way of seeing and um, to look at some of these old texts with fresh eyes rather than, you know, the preconceptions he brought to them and to try to perhaps see how we can continue to embody some of the spirit of these ideas um, through new approaches, you know, in a way that's what you're talking about with accessible yoga, going back to the Upanishads, but yeah, on a chair with some props. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, I know. So I just wanted to first of all pick up on the uh, you know the podcast I mentioned. I went looking to see if any of those episodes were were out there, and I discovered the uh, interviews that accompanied your previous book, Yoga Revolutions. So I listened this afternoon to you talking to your editor at Shambhala, Beth Frankel, about the whole you know, difficult task of putting together a book. Um, and I wanted to ask you about your decision with this book to publish it yourself, because. Yeah. You know, obviously having a publisher behind you does have some big advantages, but you know, it also has some drawbacks. And um, yeah. I imagine self-publishing works the same way, but with slightly different pros and cons. So I was curious if you could say a little bit more about the decision yeah. and also those those issues. Well, also, I just want to thank you because Yoga Revolution, my second book, you helped me with that a lot. You, you helped review it, which I really appreciate. Um, your perspective was really invaluable. So I, I hope that you know that. Um, well, thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, I mean, I Beth Beth has become a good friend through the process of publishing the, my first two books, Dushanbala, and I learned a lot. I learned not as much as I thought I had learned, but I learned a lot about publishing through that. But yeah. uh, so I thought self-publishing seemed like a good idea. She she encouraged me to do it. I don't think Shambhala wanted the book at all. Anyway, they didn't want this book. They they've, they said, well, it's very niche, you know, just to, set, to to write a book just for yoga teachers is kind of too small, uh, you know, an audience for them. They do kind of these broad, mostly Buddhist um, books and yoga books. And they'd be incredibly supportive of me and I appreciate them. But it was, and then I went to some other publishers actually with this book. I got turned down by another really big one, but then one pretty good one, I won't name them, but they wanted it. But mm -hmm. at that point, I realized, you know, I think I'm willing to do it myself. The difference with self-publishing, to be perfectly honest, is that it's financial mm -hmm. because you have to make an investment up front. There's costs up front to publishing a book that if you go with a publisher, it's the opposite. So ideally, they pay you a bit, don't they? <laughs> yeah. And they, they, I got really great advances on my first two books with Shambhala, which I really appreciate. So they're giving you this money up front. They're handling all the upfront costs. And then they give you a very small royalty over time that you kind of use to pay back that advance. And like, I'm finally actually getting advances on my first book, Accessible Yoga. Now, I think it's been five years or so since I published it, but it's taken 
it took almost five years to start getting royalties on that book because of the advance and having to pay it back. And it sold really well. So that's the, the, it's a financial decision with self-publishing. You put money out up front and then if it sells well, potentially you get more royalties in the long run. So it's like, it's kind of almost like a financial decision. And I think it also depends on you, like who, you know, what your position is in the world in terms of like, do you feel like you have a way of selling the book yourself? Or do you need the support of a publisher? Even though, as I say that, I just want to admit that publishers really depend on you to sell the book, right? They're not really- Well, that was the interesting thing <laughs> in that conversation. You get to the end of it and you're basically saying, well, the thing I learned was I got to do all the work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's kind of why I did it myself in the end too. It's like, yeah. I appreciate them, but at this point I've realized I was selling it anyway. Mm. So I might as well make more money off it. Um, again, I had to invest up front. But I also had more control because when you go with a publisher, generally they control the cover and the title, which are big, right? And with self-publishing, I got to control it all, which made it really hard. It was hard to make decisions. You know, it's like all on <laughs> me. Um, but I have a great team, a lot of support. So it worked out fine. I mean, it's just, you know, it's been a journey. It still is. <laughs> so it's still a journey. The, I made an audio book for this new one and it's, ah. but it's, it's coming soon. So it's like, you know, it's, yeah, it's just complicated. And do you, I think, worked on the, the project through Amazon's uh, self-publishing system and you uh, went on well, your, your website into, into the sort of issues that exist obviously with Amazon. Yeah. But, uh, well, that's, that's what I'm, what I, it's actually two platforms uh, Amazon first because they're biggest. So I started, they have something called KDP, which is, I believe, called Kindle Direct Publishing. And correct. You know, Amazon's horrific, but they control the market. And for self publishers, like we don't really have a choice. Like if you want to sell mm -hmm. your book, you kind of have to go through them. And it's interesting because they take a higher percentage, of course, being Amazon. They take basically, I think it's 40% plus a printing fee. Wow. And then there's this other, um, uh, Ingram Spark, which is another yeah. very large platform that's not Amazon, that I believe is like Barnes and Noble and Target, things like that. And that's just been much slower. Like it just takes time. It's not as, you know, Amazon's on it. They got it out right away. This one is like, I'm still waiting <laughs> for it to be distributed. <laughs> it's in a few places. My goal is for it to be available everywhere. I mean, that's what I yeah. figured. Um, so yeah, it's definitely been a learning process. Yeah, what about you? You um, are you going to do it? Are you going to self-publish? Is that... I don't know. I'm weighing this up. I mean, I'm working on another book, but it's still very early days, and it's a struggle to interest people in yoga books. I had a chat with an agent last year. In fact, that's why I haven't gone much further with my my project because she was uh, you know enthusiastic on one level. I mean, I've written two books. I used to be uh, you know a regular journalist. Yeah. Uh, I've got you know a reasonable following of people, but um, she also then ran the slide rule across it and said, "What? Well, oh, you haven't got fifty thousand followers?" <laughs> and I was like, "Well, no." Uh, so you know, don't tick that box. Um, you're not a celebrity. Um, you haven't got any celebrities in your book. Uh, okay, don't tick that box. And do you want to write about yoga? Aren't there lots of books on yoga already? 
Um, so it's it's a challenge, um, and it's a challenge for people to make money selling yoga books, I guess. So that's you know they 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 tend to see particular issues that are alive at the moment that they can align yoga with, or particular demographics that they can you know target, or political messages around you know other issues that can be brought together with yoga, and uh, yeah. those are the things that are safe bets for for a marketing department at a publisher. And it does seem that it's the marketing department that makes a lot of the decisions. They don't necessarily do a lot of marketing but they, they they certainly think about what's going to sell <laughs> that is true i actually think publishers are marketing departments i mean there's no difference that's all their businesses most of them are simply businesses owned by some person who's just trying to make a living and they're making money off yeah. your book basically exactly. so you have to you have to realize that that's what's happening you know and if you self-publish then you have the potential of making money off your book which is better mm -hmm. even though amazon will still take a big chunk or whoever is selling <laughs> it. But yeah, I think, I mean, generally, I think you're in a kind of similar situation. I'm in, I, I'm in. I think that you, I think you could do it yourself. Actually, I would recommend that you do. And I'm happy to help you. We can talk another time if you want. Well, thank you. No, that would be great. Yeah. yeah. But, but I would say for most people who are kind of newer, if they're really just, they haven't written a book yet, I, I wouldn't necessarily start self-publishing. You know, if you, mm -hmm. If you can get a publisher interested, I think it's worth doing one book through a publisher at least to kind of learn that process and have your hand held a little through it. And maybe, you know, it gives you a sense of, I don't know, I got a book out, you know, but like, I think if you are gonna really pursue book writing, which I know you are, I mean, it's just part of who you are, um, then I think it's worth doing. And me too, I love writing, you know, it's just such an important practice for, it's a practice for me. Uh, uh, just, yeah. it's my one of my favorite things to do. So um, I have a background in journalism, but it's nothing like yours, which is really incredible. I don't know if your listeners even know about your background. Uh, uh, I don't talk about it so much, it? but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, I've touched on it, but uh, I mean, it wasn't that uh, stellar, but um, I was, I was a foreign, foreign correspondent for a few years and, uh, worked at one point for the New York Times and then saw them doing all sorts of heinous things, uh, quit yeah. in a hurry. But still, to get to the New York Times is pretty incredible. Um, I mean, I wrote for a small AIDS newsletter. <laughs> that was my journalism. <laughs> Probably have more integrity, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just I had a really good editor, actually, who gave me such a hard time for years that it just made me really take writing seriously. So that's all. I just... I think a lot of yoga teachers don't have that benefit of just any writing experience. And it's, it's such a, it's such a challenge and a skill, I think that you have to develop over time. Um, but I'm still developing. I mean, it's like constantly changing, but uh, that's why I appreciate your, I appreciate your books and your work. I only know you have one book of yours, but. Um, well, the other one's a darker story. It's literally yeah. called a rough guide to the dark side. And it's all about okay. quitting my job at the New York Times to get involved with Balkan gangsters. So it's not necessarily uh, wow. <laughs> yoga friendly, but it is what led <laughs> me to get serious about yoga. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's good. Yeah. I mean, and it's AIDS activism that got me involved. Same. I mean, it's it's kind of good to tell your story. That, so. That's the other thing I have to admit about not having a publisher is just feeling more Free, like feeling freer just with my writing I, I think when I was working for them it was working for them you know like they there was a certain even though they were very supportive of me I feel like I had to make to write something they wanted mm -hmm. you know and I got some direction from them that was a little bit specific you know, like what they wanted me to produce and I now feel like oh I can write it whatever I want 
<laughs> I don't have to please anyone. Like I just, whatever I feel is necessary and, and useful to the world can come. And that's an amazing feeling, you know? Uh, exactly. And there is this possibility now that people haven't had until <laughs> the modern era to, to just yeah, have, complete control of the means of production so to speak <laughs> but, uh, oh yeah and you know a big part of it i don't know if you're aware of this is print on demand uh quality yeah. so in the past print on demand which is what self-publishing generally is is very poor quality and so that you really could tell on a printed book that it was you know self-published it just didn't have the same feeling but now it's changed and most publishers actually do print exactly. on demand also yeah, right yeah. so really there's almost no difference maybe a tiny difference, but almost no difference between a big publishing house producing it and you doing it yourself. I mean, you can barely tell the difference looking at the book. You have to know what you're looking for, I think, to tell, to tell the difference now. Could you tell on the copy you got? Um, well, there's one, there's one striking thing on the back cover. There's no price, which you would yeah. always have on a normal book, but I guess you've got this set up for all markets, so there's no point yeah. sticking a price on the back. Yeah. But I think, yeah, coming back to what I said, I was a little bit over enthusiastic, perhaps to say complete control over the means of production, given what you were saying about how much of a, a slice Amazon takes out of it. And, uh, yeah, the fact that there is no perfect solution. And uh, I think that brings me back to this question of accessibility in yoga. And I was mm. really struck by something you wrote that it isn't actually possible to have 100% accessibility by any criterion, whether it's you know, financial accessibility, whether it's accessibility of yoga spaces, the availability of practice to whoever might show up, you know, it's, it, there's always some compromise involved somewhere. And yet at the same time, there's a slogan I've seen you use a few times that says, if it's not accessible, it's not yoga. And yeah. I, I wonder, I wonder how that statement, you know, can be reconciled with the previous one. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that statement might be overstating things, but I think it's, I'm trying to share a message. Um, so first of all, I agree with what you're saying. It's hard to have 100% accessibility because one of the reasons is that we don't know what's happening inside of people and how they're responding. So you don't know if someone has had some kind of trauma and they react to something you say really negatively and it causes some, it triggers them in some way, or because people might have conflicting needs in a space, this very common experience I've had teaching yoga where someone wants the room warm and someone wants it cold. And, you know, it's just like, it's impossible to please everyone, but not just please them. It's impossible to actually give them exactly what they need. We can do our best. And I guess the point is to kind of let us off the hook a little bit as yoga teachers, that it's more of a goal an orientation to work on serving your students to the best of your ability. And my, my, the phrase I use about if it's not accessible, it's not yoga. I'm trying to speak more to yoga philosophy to what I see as kind of a, some of the underlying themes that, as I understand them in, yoga, in the yoga teachings, which is that, well, I mean, all the texts that I've ever read seem to offer universal spiritual teachings, right? Saying that kind of that we share the same spiritual essence. It seems like there's this theme within yoga. I don't know if you'd agree with that, but like that there is this basic essence that we have, um, you know, Atman or Purusha and, um, the point I try to make is if we're not allowing everyone a way to experience that, we're not re representing that concept in yoga, you know, this universal spiritual teaching. What do you think of that? Well, I would agree with that in principle. Um, certainly, I mean, yeah, 
there are caveats of uh, Sankhya philosophy, the dualistic system that the Yoga Sutra is built on says, you know, there's many Purushas rather than there being one. So they might you know, be but technically equal, functionally the same. Yeah, but they're still sort of separate. So there's a slightly different spin on it. But yeah, it, functionally, it's the same thing. Um, and uh, yet at the same time, I think the other thing I feel moved to say is... <laughs> Um, the bar is then very high, Jivana. Um, uh, how do you teach everybody to access the Atman? Yeah. I mean, that is really what we're doing, I think. I mean, if, if I often ask that question of people that I'm training. is like, what are you doing? Like, what do you think you're doing when you're teaching yoga? What is the point of standing up in front of a room or sitting in front of a room and like having people do all these things? Like, what is the actual goal here? And I'm not sure I can say what the goal is for everyone. I mean, for me, it is that, is actually trying to give people some access to that part of themselves, because that's what I'm practicing for. You know, I, my practice is to give voice to that. I, I guess I don't think of it as Atman when I say it out loud, but, you know, to me, that part of me that I know that is beyond just this body and mind, right? There's part of me that I can connect with. And I feel that is what I'm trying to do when I teach is give people access to that as well through whatever practices might work for them. I don't know. Well, in some ways, uh, it makes a lot of sense to strip the, you know, kind of fixation on doing things with the body out of it a little bit, because that's an enormous distraction. It's very easy to get hung up on what the body can and can't do. And uh, oh, yeah. That, that 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 can become its own rationale for practicing and also you know the yardstick by which one sort of measures progress rather than you know, seeing it purely as i mean as again you quoted kino at the end sort of saying it's a tool um but uh, you know i don't know that many people who use a, a very strong asana practice like ashtanga to really actually see beyond the body often they, they say they're doing that while getting ever more attached in mastering the next posture in the sequence yeah. until they reach their limit when they're like, I can't go any further or yeah, they yeah. get injured. And that's usually the point at which realism kicks in. <laughs> right. But that's also where I enter the picture. You know what I'm saying? Like my experience has been with people who have that, you know, who, I, I started teaching with disabled students. That's where it began for me. And so, yeah. you know, my, my, I started teaching yoga because I wanted to share with the, my community of people with HIV and AIDS and, and this was in the 90s and many people were still dying of AIDS and so literally my first classes I had students who were very sick and then were dying and and so I guess to me I just immediately realized it's not about the body this is not about making the body better I mean that's a side benefit and it's important right like there are potential health benefits to yoga that are great but that's not what I don't, I, I don't see that in the teachings. You know, when I read anything, the Gita, the sutras, Upanishads, it feels like there's a very clear theme of going beyond the body, right? To connect with some eternal spirit. I mean, it seems very clear to me. And I don't know why we're not saying that, you know, I mean, it's, I don't know. I, it's funny because I'm teaching a class about um, a workshop about faith, uh, later today and mm. I'm out a lot because I think faith is a word that is often used in religious context but I actually think in the yoga context why not can't we why can't we have faith you know faith in ourselves you know in that mm. part of ourselves and isn't that what we're doing is try to build that build that connection more strongly and um, identifying who we are and then getting access to it 
Um, Absolutely, yeah. It says in the commentary on Yoga Sutra 120 that's attributed to Vyasa, it sustains the yogi like a loving mother, Shraddha, ah, faith. Shraddha, yes, right, right. And then it's 121 where it's uh, Ishvara Pranidhana, right? I mean, that's where he's A little bit further on, 23. Yeah, but yeah, 23. It's really right before we get into that, yeah. Yeah. Um, and what is, right, what is Patanjali actually talking about? I mean, Ishvara Pranidhana, it's, I, it's so interesting to me the way contemporary scholars translate Ishvara Pranidhana because I see so much conflict. There's so much confusion there for me. And I think I think it's because we're using a rational approach to something that's spiritual. You know, to me, it's it's faith. It's this like connection to something beyond, you know, and um, that's how it feels to me, at least. And I'm like, why can't I ju we just say that? So, like, could we reclaim the word faith? Is there a way to do that, you know? I think that's a very healthy attitude. Uh, if I'm about to have a conversation with somebody who's shied away from using the word faith to translate that in uh, uh -huh. a book about a completely different topic. But um, <laughs> it's a, an interesting question, I think, because there is a lot of, you know, I guess, stigma around that word in the sense that it has this, you know, I guess, uh, monotheistic, organized religion connotation in the Western world. And yoga is not a religion in that sense. And even Ishvara, yeah, I mean, it's a sort of placeholder for a, any number of possible things. But yeah. uh, the idea is faith in the practice. And the thing that you're having faith in is the, as you say, the, the, the ability to connect to something that's actually beyond this mind and the body, because the ultimate thing is to not be afraid of dying, because this body is absolutely going to fall to pieces. And all exactly. the things that we try to hold on to are going to disintegrate. Um, right. But yeah, there's, some, there's still something to have faith in, which is a way of seeing that is not concerned about any of that because it's right. just just is <laughs> it's just i mean i think it's it revolutionary is. because if you look how faith has been used in organized religion it's been used to control people because spiritual teachings are the most powerful of all i mean you know most revolutions are based on spiritual principles and ideas i mean if you look at that if you look at them there's it, it's the heart of humanity is spirituality and yet we you know and we have access to these yoga teachings that offer ways for individuals to do it by themselves and it, it's that's revolutionary to me is that you don't need the structure of church you know or the priest or minister to do it for you you actually can do it and by yourself through yoga and that's that's kind of what i've been trying to get at through my teachings and especially this yoga revolution book actually that's what i was trying to say is it's revolutionary because we can do it ourselves like we don't need that and it would i think transform us and give us a lot of power because i think in capitalism in general and i mean in the the moment that we're in right now the world is feeling chaotic and messy it i feel powerless and yet i know through my yoga practice that's not true that actually power lies with me and each of us has that within us and i think it's so important for us to recognize that it's not about giving people power it's about giving them the recognition that they have that already right agency within themselves and I think that's how yoga could change the world is if it was taught that way. But it's not. It's not being taught that way. Well, everybody's getting lost on the body and, uh, yeah. you know, what it can and can't do. Um, exactly. It's very interesting. The very next word in that sutra that talks about, you know, the importance of faith is vidya, which is you know, this power mm. that comes out of the faith. Um, and the faith is really just confidence. It's, you know, yeah. an absolute, you know, certainty that there is this power within us um, because it's, ah. it's something we can tap into. We can experience it. It's not an idea. Yeah. You don't have to believe in it. <laughs> it's it's right. not that kind of faith. It's, yeah. uh, it's not a blind faith. It's, it's based on experience. Right. 
And actually, I, I was thinking about to, he brings up Ishvar Pranidana a couple of times, right? Like uh, book two, Sutra one, he's saying yoga in practice or in action is, is that as well. Like you, you go through tapas, so, yeah, so you, you have suffering or discipline and then you reflect on it and you think about it or something. And then the answer is, you know, faith to have reconnect with yourself again. Like it feels to me like he's saying yoga in practice is, is that process, this journey back to yourself. Yeah. Well, that's true. But I think those three components are equal in a way. And then the tapas is to do something that's a bit uncomfortable, which I guess is going to bring me back into, you know, poking a little stick at the okay. accessible yoga conception of things, yeah. because sometimes it suggests to me that we're trying to get comfortable. Um, and there was a there was a line somewhere I did make a note of it. Yeah, you said that uh, I always want my students to be comfortable and to have a positive experience. Now, this was in the chapter where you're talking specifically about trauma informed approaches, but um mm. I just wonder the extent to which, you know, for tapas to be part of practice, isn't that about getting out of the comfort zone and being okay with things not being positive? Mm. I, I see that. But I think in the context of the role of a yoga teacher, I, I don't think it's our job to probe and poke and trigger people. Sometimes it's done, you know, yoga teachers think that's their job. And I don't, I just... I think we have to be cautious. We're not trained therapists. I think we have to understand literally our scope of practice, like what it is that we're doing. And so my job isn't to push you outside of your boundaries, to offer you practices for you to explore yourself. I agree that growth for growth to happen, there has to be some discomfort. Yeah. But, mm -hmm. but I actually think growth can happen. What I've seen my students do, the ones who've really grown, or when they feel held by me, like you said earlier, what was it? The arms of the mother. I think that it sustains a yogi like a loving mother. This is mother. I mean, I kind of see myself as that. And I try not to say it publicly like I just have. But I mean, when I'm teaching, I actually feel like I'm holding the students in my hands. And I, I think that support and love and kindness that I can offer them is the fertile ground for them to grow, actually, rather than the disciplined, you know, I mean, because I actually in the book, I do talk about how some yoga classes feel like performance, like it's like you need to do what I'm doing. You you should wear the clothes I'm wearing and you should look like me and you should do the things I do. Right. There's a very performative aspect of modern asana classes. And I think I don't think that to me, that doesn't support the kind of internal growth that we're talking about which I actually think happens when we feel supported. It reminds me of like restorative yoga when I've studied with like I actually go to yoga therapy. I have a yoga therapist, a Sherry Clampus. She's a really well-known teacher. She actually lives here in town. She's incredible. And what she does for me when I go and, and have sessions with her, is she just creates comfort and support for me. And then she asks questions and she'll maybe touch one thing. You know, it's a very, <laughs> it's a kind of wisdom that I, maybe I couldn't get that far in that book, but it starts with the support. No, I hear you. And that's it's a very important sort of illustration of the paradox that is often there yeah. in yoga that it's both and it's not mm. either or. Um, but uh, yeah, it's definitely not the job of the yoga teacher to slap people out of their comfort zone. There's been far no, too much of that. But it's also at the same time important, I think, to you know, remind people that they, you know, it's okay to feel uncomfortable sometimes. It's, it's Otherwise, we're, we're ever more trying to secure the space as the safest it can be. Whereas there's almost no no insurance against that especially when it comes to the end of the whole thing at death you know yeah. it's, the body is going to decay and yeah the whole thing to, to start well to I, face. 
I share in the book a story of when I was first in the first few years of my teaching, I, I taught at a public hospital in San Francisco mm-hmm. and I didn't know what to expect. And I walked in and there were five students who were all had quadriplegia. They had, they couldn't move their bodies. Two of them could move their heads slightly and two of them could talk a little. The other three couldn't speak at all or move their bodies at all. And they just left me in the room with these five students, like teach them yoga. And it just was such an amazingly mind blowing experience um, because it really challenged me to think about what am I doing? You know, I I think I'm teaching spiritual practice, but I'm really just teaching body movement, exercise. And it took a long time for me to come to terms with that. I mean, I kind of tell a story in the book about it, but I think we have to let go of that. We have to understand the role of the body. It's very important, but it's just one step in that process. And there's way, the deeper we go, the more powerful it is. And what I actually learned from those students is that you can make something more accessible by going to a more subtle level, like the koshas and how you could work on the energy level or with the mind, you know, visualizing practice is simply, it is simpler it's easier but also more advanced at the same time right even though i hate that dichotomy but you know what i mean it's it's like something that's more accessible can also be more powerful is what i learned i hear you exactly and uh i guess there's another sort of dichotomy lurking in there that i'm keen to tease out as well Um, and it does relate to the way we sort of uh try to verbalize all of this um Mm -hmm. and um you know it's between sort of encouragement of others to explore what you're you know really devoting your teaching towards um while at the same time you know feeling that they do need to kick up the backside <laughs> and uh yeah there's, there's some quite strong you know almost finger wagging language comes out at times which I, I was struck by particularly because you explicitly talked about your distaste for Iyengar yoga teaching in particular which I've had my yeah. own experience of I know it yeah. inside out of people you know basically getting publicly shamed as a way of being taught asana um i just sort of wonder you know um how far to push that and i'm thinking particularly um you know, talking about sometimes cultural appropriation you you, you had some very strong language said if you're only using the teachings for profit and approaching yoga teaching just as a job you're appropriating an ancient indigenous practice that has already been and is still very much being colonized and abused by westerners and uh yeah, that's sort of uh, it's quite confronting way of putting things. Uh, it also suggests that you're not somehow complicit in that, which, uh, yeah, as a Westerner, presumably you are. I am. Yeah, I should have, I should have added that. I thought I did. I mean, I, I think it, it's part of my process, you know, trying to share that. It's like, what am I doing? Yeah, maybe I should have been more thoughtful of that. I don't know. I, I think awareness of it is really important, um, you know, and considering my position. And what am I doing to further cultural appropriation or address it? Part of it for me is turning to um, voices of South Asian teachers and not all the time, but really lifting them up and trying to show that that's also important. Because I think in, it's strange to me that if you look at the biggest teachers in yoga in the world, like who are the most famous yoga teachers? They're almost all white American teachers. and. That seems odd. So I don't know. I tried to do that in the book. I tried to bring in a number of South Asian voices um, in particular, uh, you know, and I do it in all my books. I try to highlight them as best I can. And in my teaching, you know, in the school I have, I always highlight them in terms of guest teachers and um, 
offering them a platform as best I can. So yeah, it's, it's a challenge for sure, because I know that the appropriation conversation, yeah, it's complicated. I don't know if you want to go there. I mean, <laughs> I'm happy to, I, I found yeah. it fascinating actually. Yeah. So please feel free. I mean, I, I think it's just, you know, I, I mean, I'm a queer person and I kind of feel like I'm also, a, you know, a cisgender white man. And so I feel like, you know, my queerness is giving me just a slight taste of maybe what it's like to be on the outside and have, you know, a little bit of challenge in terms of marginalization. But then I have a lot of privilege as a white cisgender man. You know, I have a lot of people that will listen to me and a lot of doors open for me that don't for other people. And so I don't know, I just have an awareness of that and the way that race in particular, I think, is used and racism is such a big part of our culture. So to me, cultural appropriation is, I think, has its roots in racism and the and colonization and the way that, you know, white people have colonized indigenous cultures around the world and then extracted what they want and used mm -hmm. it and then kind of left the left those communities with this sense of, I don't know, like I was reading something about Africa and how we think we always say that we think of Africa as a poor continent and that these countries in Africa don't have anything, but actually they're incredibly rich countries. The natural resources are incredibly abundant, but they're being extracted from the West, you know, where actually Western countries are using those, um, the resources and not sharing them really with the local communities. And I feel that way about yoga somewhat. It's almost like we've, you know, how much benefit is going back to, to India in particular and to South Asian teachers, right? And how much money and resources are actually going just to white Americans, including myself. I mean, I'm definitely part of the problem. So maybe that's why the language is stronger because it's something I'm struggling with. Well, I don't know. I wonder maybe you could cut yourself a little bit more slack because there's, you know, it's just a problem of being a person. I mean, those dynamics, obviously, historically, uh, you know, unignorable. They're part of the, the story of, you know, how yoga ever came to the West because the British colonized India and uh, you know, were in the business of stealing things and then using, um, you know, Sanskrit texts to help them govern the local population, hence translating all these things in the first place and slowly awareness spreads. And then, you know, teachers suggest to their students, you know, bring your, bring your uh, knowledge that you've picked up from me and spread it widely and it's all fine. And so, so there's an encouragement to do that. And, and yet at the same time, you know, there's there's plenty of exploitation of yoga teachings for profit and for all sorts of nefarious political objectives in modern India. Um, so it's not necessarily a white That's person true. thing. <laughs> That's true. Well, and casteism, I think, is another great example of that. Exactly. I mean, casteism is a huge problem that hasn't been addressed uh, in yoga. And it's, you know, a lot, a lot of the old texts are from a time that was riddled with that problem. Uh, yeah. The Bhagavad Gita is all about upholding the caste system in some way, as well as also being a, an opportunity for everyone to get liberated if they stay in their lane. So th these things are messy. And, you know, I sometimes feel like in order, because, you know, we're, for the most part, in this sort of yoga teaching world, you know, conscientious people concerned about doing harm, trying to think about what we can do better. 
that yeah, we can sometimes be seduced into sort of slightly overdoing our role in the problem rather than just seeing it as you know, part of how things unfold um, and that it's not exclusive to us. And also that the whole history of yoga is about cultural appropriation. The Bhagavad Gita, again, let's take that example, um, is basically Brahmins, you know, borrowing all sorts of things that the Buddhists had really popularized to say, hang on, we, 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 we can make that part of our system. Also stealing you know, the basic idea of yoga is something that rejects the the whole vedic ritual approach to life and saying we'll put it all in the melting pot reinvent everything and what do you know we stay top of the tree um so there's that in it's sort of embedded in the whole process of how yoga has evolved ideas going backwards and forwards between traditions unattributed and uh kind of misrepresented sometimes just for the purpose of promoting a particular lineage and I guess what we've added into the mix is, as you say, profit and and there's resentment, understandably, particularly when you know people from India see things that they hold sacred, completely, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah. rubbished, effectively, and uh, you know turned into to trinkets that uh, that other people put a lot of cash in the bank from. Um, so I understand that people are annoyed about it, but I, I sometimes think that the, the the whole framework of the concept of cultural appropriation doesn't really explain what's wrong about those actions. Yeah. Those actions think, are wrong because they're disrespectful and uh, you know opportunistic and dishonest, effectively as well. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's oversimplified, perhaps, um, because it's a, there's a history of it within the yoga tradition for sure. And I think <laughs> caste is where I just keep going back to, and I just think that's like. The frontier of what needs to be studied now and discussed more in yoga is casteism and the impact it's had on the way we're teaching today. Um, I don't know if you know the book, The Trauma of Caste, um, Tanmori Sandrarajan. I don't know that one, no. It's such an amazing book and she she really addresses that. um, A Dalit feminist meditation on survivorship, healing and abolition. you know, and I think um, it's just helping understand that, yeah, this has been an ongoing issue in India, like you said, and through the history of yoga, because, for example, in the book, she talks about how um, so Dalit people, lower caste people weren't allowed to read or hear Sanskrit at all. And so they were not allowed to be part, you know, of that tradition. But there is also a history where I think you said, like, where some of the um, the the rituals of the local people like community rituals were then used and made to be lifted up and then were kind of taken extracted from the people themselves so it's it's incredibly complicated but i do think even today caste is a is a part of what's happening in yoga and and like you said it is still being politicized in india obviously i mean through (laughs) the yeah, through the way that politics is happening international day of yoga and all that mess you know which is really terrible hindu hindu you know hinduism has used it to kind of reclaim the yoga teachings uh for political purposes um which is really painful and unfortunate so it's not it's it's not simple and i i I, maybe i oversimplified but i think it's just because maybe i'm not the person to talk about it um i probably should have said it in a more careful way but it's okay and no, i didn't mean to sort of single you it's out okay. but uh, it's just interesting i think sometimes you know in pursuit of um justice uh it's it's very tempting to fall for these ideas that you know there's there's the right answer and there's this you know the silver bullet and if we all just you know fixed cultural appropriation the world would be lovely and uh firstly i'm yeah. not sure how we could do that and and, and, and yeah. secondly uh, 
it's a problem of people wielding power over other people by nefarious means. It's not mm. confined to white Western yoga teachers, unfortunately. Um, in fact, no. I've come back to the point you made about the biggest yoga teacher. I mean, in India, the biggest celebrity yoga teacher is Ramdev, uh, you know, the sort of sponsor of uh, the, the current prime minister. He's um, got a multi-billion dollar corporation that he named after Patanjali. So if that's not yeah. cultural appropriation, I don't know what is. Yeah, right. And the, and doing a lot of harm, actually. I mean, yeah. you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, danger to that. I mean, what's happening in India, I think there there's a kind of erasure of like Muslim, the Muslim community and the attacks on that community is really terrible. Um, yeah, it's, it is messy. Um, but yeah, it's human nature, I think. But I feel like, I guess for me, it's like understanding where I fit in and also an acknowledgement of my role in it, I think is very important to place myself consciously um, within this stream of history and just to be honest with myself and not pretend otherwise. Um, so that's part of practice, right? This kind of self-inquiry and also reflection on who am I and where am I in that, in that whole mess of yoga yeah hey and uh you know honestly it's uh <laughs> stands to your credit that you're prepared to firstly uh, write about you know your own potential shortcomings but also to discuss yeah. them um and that does lead me on to the last question just briefly i wanted to to come back to another line that uh which i think may or not even have been your wording it was the headline on a yoga journal article where you were talking a little bit about politics a few years ago and uh, the headline on it was yoga has always been political and uh, that in fact i think annoyed uh, a south asian writer to the extent that they sort of demanded right of reply and <laughs> wrote another article basically critiquing a white western yoga teacher who thinks yoga should be social justice oriented who's talking about cast and whatnot and, and and should get back in their box and uh, stop telling indians what to do so it's, it really is complicated it makes me wonder is there any particular political worldview that we could really base in yoga teachings or well i mean just to mention i think that particular teacher probably supported the current um system in india and oh, absolutely. that new perspective <laughs> on the control yeah so i think um I think it's important to reflect on that. It's not that all Indian or South Asian voices have the truth either. We need to understand exactly more, yeah, more subtly for sure. Yeah, I think that was a headline that Yoga Journal um, put on that piece. But I was trying to speak to, actually, I I think it was when Yoga Revolution came out, possibly, and that in that book, Yoga Revolution, I talked about the revolutionary nature of these teachings, which I touched on earlier a bit, which is that if we can recognize our inherent individual power it can shift the way we are in the world and potentially have political implications and part of that is to recognize that um it, my understanding of yoga is that our spirit is the same or at least different but the same and that the the human our human experience is completely different and diverse and so it's almost like we need to be able to perceive that similarity of what's shared and also the difference clearly um, as we go into the world. And what I feel like is happening through mostly um, spiritual bypass is that we kind of think, oh, it's all good. You know, everything's okay. Rather than recognizing the real challenges that exist for many people. And so for me, politics is another word for 
how we interact with each other, the rules we make to govern our societies and the way we treat each other. And I think that for a yoga practitioner, you know, we can find compassion for others by finding this connection, part of us that's connection without denying the difference. So if someone's suffering because of racism, even though I'm white, I can recognize that suffering. I don't have to deny it because it's not this, they're not the same as me. It's like, you know what I'm saying? Like there's a tendency to like deny it through yoga and through spiritual teachings. And I think that's been a mistake. I think that's spiritual bypass rather than to acknowledge that you're the same as me, but you're having a different experience and you're suffering because of this thing. And so my practice is to see our connection and have compassion for you through that. And that will shift the way that I treat you and would therefore shift the way that I act politically, who I vote for, um, what I support, what I want my tax dollars to go to. Um, I think that's a natural outcome of my being, not only being a spiritual practitioner, a yoga practitioner, but also being a householder practitioner, you know, which is that the other thing that drives me crazy is that we pretend that we're these ascetic monastics, you know, and it's just so not true. Like, it's just not what's happening at all. We're dealing with the world and with politics and money and business. And if we're going to be practitioners, I think we need to bring that perspective into all of those things that we do. I hear you. And uh, that will also therefore mean, given the diversity, there'll be, you know, multiplicity of political expressions based on that true understanding. But yeah. at least if we can yeah, all be connected to that on some level, there's there's some hope that uh, there might be yeah. a slight, slightly less um, domineering and exploitative expressions of uh, of our aspirations in the worldly, worldly sphere. Yeah, because I, but I think it's true that we'll have different political expressions, but I think that if you look at the teachings, it's clear that we'll have compassion. Compassion is the result of acknowledging who we are and seeing that in others. I mean, the Gita says it really clearly, you know, that there's a section, um, it's in chapter six, I believe, where, where yeah, Krishna is talking about that. Like once you perceived your own spiritual nature, your own Purusha or Atman, then you will see it in others and actually feel the pain and pleasure of others as your own. And I think that to me is that recognition of our shared humanity. And I think that will shift the way that, I think that's what social justice is. I mean, social justice isn't necessarily like, I mean, it is identified as a kind of a left idea, but I think compassion is, <laughs> is the key Right. Like wanting everyone to have the same benefits that I do. Right. Like I want everyone to, to have housing and safety and food. And um, yeah, I don't know if that's political as much as it's just compassionate. Um, yeah, that's a really nice first first to conclude on. I think, yeah, the, uh, I think the thirty second uh, shloka of the sixth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita is that yeah. one: seeing everybody's suffering as, as, as and pleasure as the same as your own. Um, and you know, as, as I suppose we've tried to express through the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and other such uh, documents that people ignore far too often. Exactly. Um, it, these are universal aspirations, universal values, and uh, I think I guess what I was touching on is that sometimes political expressions can uh you know speak to particular 
shared interest groups and to sort of see the world in terms of you know one particular group's needs over and above those of another group um whereas in reality in the end um, unless we're talking universally i don't think we are aligned with that underlying spirit of things although obviously everybody is <laughs> conditioned to think you know, in terms of those sort of group priorities more than than they are of the groups that they're you know not part of but yeah that's just that's the messy business of being a human again <laughs> yeah i mean i think you can see it in the in the u.s i see it in um you know religious fundamentalists who perceive themselves as religious and yet seem to be have no feeling for other humans you know there's there's like such a lack of compassion and care for you know it's like there's a concern for an unborn fetus but what about actually born children right like that makes no sense to me it's illogical right like so i think that spirituality is so often abused in politics and that's why that title was dangerous i think you're correct to highlight that but i do think what i was trying to say in that article is that let's find we can find compassion for others through practice and that will that will inspire us to act differently in the world and care for each other. Because I think that's, that's what po politics could be. You know, there can be politics that's used to give people what they need. I mean, to me, that's why like, that's why bureaucracy should exist is only to care for those that don't have what they need. But unfortunately it's often just simply used by people who have power and money to get more. Um, but I, so my, my, my hope is that people who are spiritual practitioners and yoga practitioners is that through their practice, they can start seeing through some of that, right? And that it will impact the way they act in the world. One last thought is just even in business, you know, if you look at the way that yoga studios run, there's a lot of unethical business practices done within yoga. And that just makes no sense to me. If you're going to call yourself yoga, a yoga practitioner, then you have to apply these ethics in everything you do. 100% agree. Okay. Thank you, Jivana. <laughs> That's been a great conversation. I really appreciate your willingness to step outside the comfort zone a little bit and uh, explore yeah. those topics. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me.